Good morning again, everybody. Great to see you. My name is Dan Halleck, and I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, thank you so much for coming out this morning and worshiping the Lord together with us. And, and like Dylan said, um, myself and some of the other leaders are going to be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. We'd love to, we'd love to get to know you. And so uh, we try to do this about once a month at the, the, the last Sunday of the month. And uh, if you're able to just hang out for five or ten minutes after the service, please do. we got some coffee over there, and I and, uh, would love to... Put a name to your face. Thank you for being here. Uh, also, just a couple announcements real quick. Uh, several people have mentioned to me that they, uh, they want to become church members, which is great. Uh, we can bring on members at any time, but we, we normally always do if there are members to bring on at the annual meeting, which is going to be the last Sunday in February. And so anyways, if, if, if you've already attended the membership class uh, and you've looked through the membership packet, which you can get at the, the uh, welcome, the information center in the lobby, um, then the next step is to, to turn in that information sheet at the back of the packet, and we will set up a time to meet with you and talk more about membership. Uh, and then the church will vote to affirm new members at the upcoming annual meeting. If for whatever reason you were unable to attend uh, the membership classes, uh, let me know and we can maybe talk through some options there. Um, also, I just want to encourage you guys uh, that, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, we've had increased offerings the past three weeks. And so um, thank you for your generosity and we praise God uh, for providing for us. Um, today is is week four of this mini-series that, that we're in called What Jesus' Followers Are Devoted To. And we've been looking at what the first Christians devoted themselves to immediately after Jesus ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit descended from heaven to fill and to empower Jesus' followers. And we've been camping out on Acts 2.42 and also looking at the larger context through verse 47. And it gives us one of the main descriptions we have of how these Christians lived life together under the leadership of the apostles. So if you have a Bible with you, please uh, open up to Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, we'll also put it on the screen in a minute. This was written by Luke, uh, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it's interesting that much of the book of Acts is written in the third person, uh, using this, this he, she's, and it's, and then at a certain point in Acts near the end, he switches to first person, because that's when he entered the scene, and he started to talk about, this is what happened while I was with, with him. And so we're still in the, uh, the third person part where he describes the life of the early church right after Jesus ascended to heaven. Acts 2, 42 to 47, let me read this aloud. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts." praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So verse 42 here uh, says that the first Christians 
did not just do stuff together randomly. They, they actually devoted themselves to the same common priorities, uh, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And in previous weeks, we've talked about what it means for Jesus' followers to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship or the, the sharing of a common life together. And this morning, we're going to talk about what it means for Jesus' followers to devote themselves to the breaking of bread together and to the prayers. And we also want to identify any challenges that might hinder our ability to devote ourselves to these things today. And then we want to look at the gospel of Jesus and talk about how the gospel addresses some of these challenges and how the gospel can help us navigate these in 2018. And again, um, this is part of a larger series, and I just want to encourage you, if you've missed sermons or if you're putting pieces together, if you don't know what an apostle is, that kind of thing, you can, we've dug into that already, and those sermons are all available on iTunes, or you can get there through our church website too. So uh, before we dig in, let me ask God to help us. Lord, we do thank you uh, for this opportunity to come together and to open your word together. May we not take that for granted, please. And uh, we ask for your help. We ask you to help us, God. You say in your word that your word is spiritually discerned. And so we need the help of the Holy Spirit to, to, uh, to teach our hearts and to teach our minds, to give us desires that uh, are in alignment with your will for us. And we ask that you would help us to trust you. Uh, we need your help to do that. And we need your help to turn from our sin and the habits in our lives that are not pleasing to you. And so we ask that you would help us, protect us physically and spiritually, be with the, the children also. And uh, we just thank you, God. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your never-ending mercies. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, let's start by talking about what it means that the first Christians devoted themselves to the breaking of bread together. The clearest meaning here is that the first Christians regularly opened up their homes to share meals together. Okay, and sharing a meal with other Christians is an invitation to share the provision of food that God has given to us, whether it's great or whether it's small. And it's also an invitation to know other Christians and to be known by other Christians in a more intimate setting. And just as it was 2,000 years ago, sharing a meal together is still an expression of unity and peace among Christians. Jesus has made us family with, with God and with one another, and so we celebrate that reality when we sit down and eat together as God's family. When you sit down at a table with other Christians, you sit down as, as equals, in God's eyes. You are all human beings created in, in God's image, and you're all adopted sons and daughters who share the same spiritual father, God. And so there is no king except Jesus at the dinner table, okay? There are no paupers at the dinner table except all of us in need of God's grace. There's no division at the table between citizens and immigrants, between sinners and saints, between unimportant or important people at the dinner table. That does not exist. When we break bread together as Christians, we are also identifying ourselves to some degree with the other people around the table. There's something about eating 
with other people that says, that gives a message that says we have a relationship of some kind. This is why middle school students can be petrified at the thought of sitting at the table in the cafeteria with the kids who aren't cool because they know by sitting with them, they will be identified with them to some degree. Some degree. And so remember that this even happened in Jesus' own life. He was ridiculed for eating with tax collectors and sinners to whom he was ministering. He was identified with the people he ate with. Well, one of the parts of the gospel, one of the wonderful parts of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is that it frees us. Jesus frees us from finding our identity in other people or in what other people think of us. And so when we share a meal with non-Christians, for instance, we identify with them as fellow human beings made in God's image who deserve dignity, every human being does, who, uh, as a person who wants to be loved, just like we all do. And when we share a meal with Christians, we, we can identify with them as, as fellow image bearers made in the image of God, and also as fellow followers of Jesus, and brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but whether we eat with Christians or non-Christians at a table, our core identity is not threatened or found in the people with whom we are sitting. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ and in the full acceptance of God that he gave to us when we trusted in Jesus, okay? So believing that reality frees us both to pursue lost people and to love lost people without being afraid of what they think about us or about what other people think about us for doing that. And believing this reality also frees us to break bread with other Christians and to celebrate that in Jesus, in Paul's words, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And in addition to sharing meals together, uh, the first Christians sometimes ended their meals by taking the Lord's Supper together. And it's not clear from this passage alone whether breaking bread together refers to sharing meals together or to taking the Lord's Supper together or to both. I would think that I probably looked at at least 15 commentaries on this and it's just split down the middle. And, but again, the most, what's most clear from this in the context in verses 45 to 46 is they were definitely eating together. And we know from other parts in the New Testament that often the meal concluded itself with the Lord's Supper. Um, regardless of how you interpret it, we know this, both are important. And because breaking bread together does often refer, that phrase does often refer to taking the Lord's Supper together, then we should talk for a few minutes about what the Lord's Supper is and why we are still devoted to this now in, in 2018, you know, 2,000 years after this, uh, these people were doing it. Uh, at Cedar Home, we normally share the Lord's Supper together on the first Sunday of the month, but we are not bound to that. Okay? We are free to take the Lord's Supper more frequently or less frequently. The New Testament does not clearly tell us how often Christians should share the Lord's Supper. Some churches take it weekly, some take it monthly, others take it quarterly. 
We take the Lord's Supper regularly, though, because Jesus commanded us to. Uh, Before he returned to heaven, Jesus ordained two ordinances for Christians, his followers, to partake in. Those ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the ordinance that Christians partake in one time soon after they trust in the Lord for the first time. And the Lord's Supper, or sometimes you hear it called communion, is an ordinance that Christians partake in many times until Jesus returns. And it might help us to understand the the role of these ordinances in the Christian life by comparing them to marriage. Uh, When a bride and groom sign their legal papers backstage before the wedding, that is when they are legally bound to each other. Okay, so they're legally, in the eyes of the state, their husband and wife before the wedding even starts. And in a similar way, in our relationship with God, the legal papers are signed, if you will, the moment when we first trust in Jesus and God legally justifies us in his sight. That moment is when our relationship as an adopted child of God is established. So the Bible says that when God makes us born again, He performs a legal transaction called justification in which he declares us not guilty of our past, present, and future sins. And at the same time, he gives to us or he imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus. He declares us righteous and not guilty at the same time. And so just like a man and a woman become husband and wife when they sign their marriage papers... God makes us his adopted sons and daughters when we trust in Jesus and God legally justifies us in his sight. Now, after God makes us Christians, he allows to partake in the ordinances. Let's stick with the marriage analogy. The ordinance of baptism is like the wedding. The couple is already technically married because they filled out the marriage papers, but now they want to stand before their friends and family and declare their love for one another and their commitment to one another. And in a similar way, when a Christian is baptized, he or she stands before his or her family and friends and declares that God has justified and saved him or her through faith in Jesus. So baptism is a, it's a declaration and a celebration just like a wedding ceremony. And then the ordinance of the Lord's Supper or communion is kind of like renewing your wedding vows together, okay? When a husband and a wife renew their vows to each other, they are declaring again that they belong to each other, that they're committed to each other. And similarly, when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus did on the cross. We remember his promises to save us and to preserve our souls Um, to preserve everyone who trusts in him for eternal life. And at the same time, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are declaring to Jesus our faith in him and our commitment to him. So again, marriage is not a perfect analogy, but it might help us to understand the different functions of trusting in Jesus for the first time, uh, being baptized after that, and then taking the Lord's Supper. We are saved through faith. Okay, I want to be real clear there. Through faith in Jesus. We celebrate our relationship with Jesus when we're baptized. And we reaffirm our faith in Jesus and his promises when we take the Lord's Supper together. Okay, 
Now I want to take a minute and explain more specifically what we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper together. And I like the way my friend Bruce Shelley explains this, and so some of this content comes from him. The Lord's Supper speaks of a past event, a present experience, and a future hope. Okay? The Lord's Supper speaks of a past event, a present experience, and a future hope. The past event is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus on the cross. The broken pieces of bread that we eat at the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for our sins on the cross. And the cup that we drink at the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed to forgive our sins. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are reaffirming our faith in Jesus and in his death on the cross for us. And we are also reaffirming our belief, listen closely, that Jesus' death was a real historical event that happened 2,000 years ago outside of present-day Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha. It is a historical reality. Christianity is grounded in reasonable, rational, historical thought. The Lord's Supper also speaks of a present experience. This present experience has, has three facets. The first part of this present experience is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, Jesus, comes. So when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming to everybody present, Christians, non-Christians, we are proclaiming that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to forgive and to eternally save everyone who trusts in him. The second part of this present experience is the covenant between God and his people. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So a covenant uh, is a promise made between God and humans or between humans. And the old covenant in the Bible was between God and the nation of Israel. And God commanded the Israelites to celebrate the Passover meal to remember how God had saved them by the blood of the lamb as they put that over their doorposts and how God had delivered them from the slavery of the Egyptians. And it's no coincidence that Jesus institute, instituted the, the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant while he and his disciples were eating the Passover meal, right? So since Jesus has come to earth now, since he's died for our sin to rescue us, the Old Covenant Passover meal has now been eclipsed by the New Covenant celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And so we take the Lord's Supper together to celebrate God's new covenant in Jesus that God eternally saves and delivers from hell everyone who trusts in the Lamb of God whose name is Jesus Christ. And the third part of this present experience is communion with God and with one another. When we take the Lord's Supper, we not only remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for our salvation, but also we spiritually share in Jesus' death through faith. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So, man, there's been so much, there's been so much ink spilt on this through centuries about this, but when we take the Lord's Supper together, this is what we need to know, we experience communion with God and with one another, not because the bread and the cup supernaturally turn into Jesus' physical body and blood. We experience communion with God and one another when we take the Lord's Supper because the Holy Spirit of Jesus is already inside his church. He's already with those who believe. And when we, as believers, eat the Lord's Supper together, we are nourished and encouraged spiritually through our mutual faith in Jesus and in Jesus' sin-defeating work for us. We trust in that. And so the Lord's Supper is it's a present experience as a proclamation of the gospel, as a covenant between God and Christians, and as communion with God and with one another. So the Lord's Supper speaks of a past event, a present experience, and also a future, excuse me, a future hope. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says that when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. And so that means when the atoning work of Jesus' death on the cross uh, occurred, uh, and when we celebrate this in the Lord's Supper, that event cannot be separated from Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, and his future return to earth. It's all tied together. It's all part of the gospel. So as we take the Lord's Supper together, this is what we're doing in part, is we are hoping. We're hoping, we're looking to the future with hope. We're not hoping in the sense of, I hope Jesus comes back even though it might not happen. When the authors of the New Testament use the word hope, they're describing a confident expectation of what is sure to happen in the future. It's anticipating it. It's this confident expectation. There are no maybes of Jesus' return, okay? That's not what you see in the New Testament. And that that is a little bit of a a different way that we use the word hope than the New Testament writers. Jesus is going to return, and we eagerly anticipate his return, okay? So when Jesus ordained the Lord's Supper in, in Matthew 26, 29, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so here Jesus is referring to this incredible future banquet, which we will have, all who belong to Jesus, will have with him when he returns to earth. And the book of Revelation refers to it as the marriage supper of the Lamb at which all people who belong to Jesus will celebrate and feast with him because we belong to him and he belongs to us. And as we take the Lord's Supper as a church, we eagerly look forward to that future marriage supper with the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper speaks of a past event, a present experience, and a future hope. And next, next Sunday, we get to take the Lord's Supper together. And so please come back for that. 
And before next Sunday, though, we're, we're going to, as a church family, do something else together that today's passage describes. We're going to pray together. And in the remainder of the sermon, I want to talk about what it means in Acts 2.42 that the first Christians were devoted to, quote, the prayers and how that applies to us today. The New Testament is really clear that the apostles and the first Christians were devoted to prayer. It wasn't like this thing at the bottom of the list. I'll get to that when I have time. It was, okay, this needs to happen. And so how does the rest of my life how do I need to prioritize the rest of my life so that this definitely happens? Uh, Not only did they pray privately, but also they regularly gathered and prayed together. Uh, Acts 1.14 says that with one accord, they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 1.24 says that when they were choosing an an apostle, they prayed together. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the prayers Acts 4.31 says that the believers prayed together and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 6.6 says that when the church selected deacons, they laid hands on them and prayed for them. Acts 12.5 says that when Peter was in prison, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so the, the examples of corporate prayer among the first Christian goes on and on and on, not only in Acts, but in all of the New Testament. And this tells us that the regular gathering of Christians to pray together is vital for a healthy church. Hear that? It's vital. This isn't an optional thing. This is vital. Prayer is quite simply talking to God. And it takes faith to talk to God because you can't see him, right? And it takes faith to believe that God actually hears your prayers because you can't see him listening to you. And um, even though he tells you us over and over again in the Bible that uh, he does hear our prayers, it takes faith to believe that our prayers make a difference. Uh, but again, God tells us in the Bible that our prayers, our prayers do make a difference, even though we may not always see how. And so we are faced with a challenge. Either we have to, we have to believe something. Do we believe our emotions and what we're feeling that my prayers don't make a difference? Or do we believe the promises of God that our prayers do make a difference, even if I can't figure out exactly how? The Bible shows us a lot of different types of prayers. Uh, We can pray prayers of of worship and adoration to God. Uh, We can pray prayers of confession of sin and of our desire to turn away from our sin or to turn away from what's not pleasing to God in our lives. We can pray prayers of thankfulness to God. We can pray to God and ask for help. We can ask God to do things for us. We could pray for other people. We could pray to God almost about anything. And, and when we pray, the Bible talks about, it instructs us in, 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 in how we should pray. We want to believe that God is listening when we pray. And we want to believe that he can do everything we ask and more. And also we want to pray, the Bible talks about praying in the power of the Holy Spirit as we follow the Spirit's leading to pray about what he wants us to pray about in alignment with scripture. And the Bible also tells us that that when we pray, we should pray in submission to God's will. We we believe that, that God can do anything we ask 
and we, we want him to do what we're asking, uh, but most importantly, we want to submit to God, even if his will is not at all what we want. We believe that God loves us so much. The more that we, we encounter God and trust in the Bible, the truth of the Bible and his word, and see what kind of God he is, that this God is trustworthy. That uh, this is one of the reasons, man, I think it's, this is one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper. We have to remember, we have to look back and remember how he has delivered us and saved us over and over and over again in our lives. Because we forget really easily. Um, we want to submit to God's will and believe that God, I know that you're going to do what's best, even if it totally crushes me. And, uh, God's will is not for us to be destroyed. That's not his desire. His desire is to take broken vessels of clay and to shine through them his glory and to be our strength and our weakness. And that takes incredible faith to pray that way, to pray what Jesus prayed, God, your will be done. I want this cup to be passed from me if there's any way for this cup to be passed for me, that's what Jesus prayed in the garden. If there's any other way. But what I really want is for your will to be done. Because I want you to be glorified in my life. We need God's help to pray that way. Right? Why should we bother to pray together as a church family? I, if we're honest, um, that we, we often want to do what's easiest and most comfortable for us then we might admit it can feel like a burden to pray with other Christians, right? Why, why bother with this thing called corporate prayer or praying as a body together? Well, one reason we pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ is because we get to, okay? God intends for praying together to be a blessing and not a burden. This is a, a means of grace that God gives to us. We gotta remember, man, <clears throat> Unlike Christians in many, many other countries, we Christians in America still get to gather together and pray to God together as his beloved and adopted children. Why is it that church meetings, though, in America are the lowest attended events? Maybe, if that right is taken from us, we will show up to church prayer meetings. I don't know but we don't want to take anything for granted. We come from a, we praise God for the legacy of this country and that we have freedom. Let's use our freedom to do the will of God for our church, right? <clears throat> God is clear in the books of 1 Corinthians and Romans and many other places that we Christians need each other. That's the way it's put, that we're all parts of the same body and we can't say to any other part, I don't need you. When we pray together, it strengthens us together. It builds us closer together. It reminds us that we are partners together, on mission together. To, we're, we want to love God and we want to love one another together. We want to see God's name glorified on earth and in the spiritual realm. All right? 
This Tuesday, January 30th at 6 p.m., we're going to share a meal together. Like Dylan said, we're going to pray together. And we want to make it real easy on you. We're, you don't have to bring anything besides yourself. We're going to share a light meal of soup and bread, and then we're going to pray for an hour. And after an hour, uh, a half hour of, of, uh, of eating the Fellowship Hall, we'll go over to the chapel. We're just going to set up some chairs in groups of six to ten. If we run out of space in the chapel, we'll overflow into the fellowship hall. <clears throat> if that idea of praying in a small group scares you, I will tell you this. I'll, we're not going to force you to pray. You can sit and pray and be quiet and let the people around you pray. We want you to pray out loud. We're not going to force you to do that. If you're really uncomfortable sitting in a group but you still want to come, you can stand or sit in a separate chair by yourself and pray. And pray. Right? This isn't, we're not trying to force anybody to do something hard that they don't want to do. We want this to be a gift of grace that, that we celebrate as a church. Um, and we'll give you a list of things to pray about. Uh, and we want to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. And so basically, we wanna, we, this is the idea. We just want to take 15 to 20 minutes praying for our church family. We've listed things we can pray for for our church. 10 to 15, or sorry, 15 to 20 minutes praying for our neighbors, our loved ones, our lost people around us, the community, our nation. And then <clears throat> we want to take the last 15 to 20 minutes and pray for the world and pray for our missionaries around the world that we're supporting as a church and, and praying for the unreached people groups in the, in the world who have not yet heard about Jesus. And this meeting is going to be for all ages. If your kids get antsy after 10 minutes, that's okay. Okay? They can sit in, on, in the back wall if they want. You can take them for a walk for 10 minutes around the campus and then come back to the group. Whatever. This is not a performance. This is just church. We just want to be a family together and pray together. Right? Think about your, if you've ever been to a big Thanksgiving dinner with a lot of people, it's not like a real quiet event. Right? It's like we're just family. That's if a kid throws a temperature, that's okay. We don't need to give a mom and a kid an ugly eye or anything. It's like, this is how it was in the early church, right? And we just got to be real together. Um, it's, it's not a, a performance that we're trying to impress anybody with by, by praying a certain way. Or we are going to have child care in the nursery uh, for toddlers through age four. We talked about, do we just do child care, you know, up through grade school? Well, we talked about that, but how do kids learn to pray if they never pray? in a group. You know what I mean? It's like, we, I don't know. We just thought, I think a fifth, a fourth grader is able to sit in a, a room, a circle for four, 45 to 50 minutes and listen to people pray and maybe pray for their friends or whatever comes to their, their heart. So we're just going to try it. We're going we're gonna to give it a shot. Um, when we talk about this, though, there's almost this resistance, though, that we feel, I feel, towards doing this. In one way, I think maybe it's because it's really countercultural to do this, right? Why is this hard for us to pray together um, like the first Christians did? What prevents us as Cedar Home Baptist Church, as Christians in 2018, from praying together as Christians? I want to do something similar to what I did last week. I want you to look in your sermon notes, insert in your bulletin, okay? Open your bulletin, okay? Look for the sermon notes insert. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to brainstorm. Write down 
reasons why you think it is hard for Christians to pray together like the first Christians did. Why is it hard for Christians now to pray together like the first Christians did? And I'll give you 30 seconds. Okay, some of you are like, I just found my pen. (laughs) Sorry, we gotta keep moving. Uh, I'm gonna list four of the reasons I came up with. And then I wanna talk about how the gospel helps us with these challenges. And just see if you came up with any of the same ones I came up with. First, it could be hard for Christians to pray together like the first Christians did, because we might not care about it. If we're just really honest, we just don't care about it. Uh, we might simply feel indifference toward praying together uh, or, or, or we're not necessarily against corporate prayer, but there might be about 10 other ways we'd prefer to spend our Tuesday evening. And besides seeing in scripture that praying together is something God wants us to do, there's not much more that anybody else can do to make you feel differently about that except for God. Um, just, I, I think that just like many areas of our lives, we need the Holy Spirit to convict us, to help us, to change our hearts so that we can enjoy what he enjoys. Um, and the reality is sometimes Jesus calls us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone, but he does that ultimately for his glory and for our joy. Second, it could be hard for Christians to pray together because we lack faith in God. Uh, maybe we don't truly believe that prayer does anything. Like, it, this seems like a waste of time, right? Um, and if we're not doing it in our own lives, then we might think it's really pointless to pray with other people. But the gospel tells us that because God has united us to his son Jesus through faith, our prayers are powerful and effective in Jesus. James 5. So instead of an activity that hinders our faith, prayer is an activity that God wants to use to grow our faith as we see all the ways that God does work through prayer. Third, it could be hard for Christians to pray together because we're too busy to gather and pray together. And I I talked about this last week, this challenge, and the fact is that ultimately, we, we do have to come to this place in life where we do believe that Every hour I have, all the time I have is given to me by God. It doesn't actually belong to me. I'm a steward of it, but it's God's time, because I don't even know how much time I have left. I can't make more time, right? I am a steward of the time God has given to me. Um, The question is, how am I prioritizing my time to to say no to some good things so that I can say yes to the best things that God wants for me? Um, now, obviously, get, hear me right. You, I, I totally get it. You cannot come to everything the church does, and there are all sorts of reasons why you might not be able to come to the gathering on th- Tuesday. And listen here, please. Do not feel like you have to explain yourself to me or to anybody else why you can't be there. I think the bigger question is this that I, I'm more concerned about. <clears throat> is there a pattern in your life what I would say a dangerous pattern in your life of being absent from church life. 
That's, that's the more important question. Because obviously we can't make it to everything, right? But what's the pattern we see in our lives? Um, fourth, it could be hard for Christians to pray together because we think we're bad at praying. I'm not good at praying, right? If that describes you, join the club, okay? <laughs> I did not grow up going to prayer meetings at church. I mean, I've been, you know, I, I've been talking to Julie. I'm like, so Julie, how does this work? We get together in a room and we pray together? She's like, yep, that's how we've been doing it for about 2,000 years. Um, I'm like, oh, cool, great, that's awesome. Well, let's, we need to do this. Um, You know, I'm, I, in my own life, I'm trying to pray more and more. I often feels like I'm bad at praying. I get distracted easily. I don't know if you do. Uh, I don't know what words to always say. I'm trying to make myself available to God, but I, the words don't always come easily. I think about, man, I should be praying for all these other people, and I don't pray for other people enough. You guys, this is... This is why we want our church life together to be centered around the good news of Jesus and not around our own works, okay? Because God does not grade our prayers. You hear that? God does not hear one person's heartfelt prayer and say, now that was a good prayer. (laughs) And he doesn't hear the heartfelt prayer of another person and say, that was a nice try. (laughs) Right? But he really missed the boat on that one. That's not how God looks at prayer. Our prayers to God are not a performance for God or for one another. We're not praying to impress anybody. We just want to love the Lord together. We have to remember this. Jesus already prayed perfectly and performed perfectly on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. This is why the cross and resurrection has to be the center of our life, the center of our identity, the center of our prayers, the center of the way that we approach prayer. Because through faith in Jesus, we already are totally accepted, totally loved by God. And so he hears our prayers the way that a really loving and compassionate dad hears his little kids talk to him. That's why Paul uses this word, Abba, Papa. It's the first, one of the first words a baby can learn. He says, Jesus made this available to us, that we, don't, that we get to call God Papa now. He's our, he's our daddy. We are God's kids who he loves so much that he died for. And if God died for you to bring you to himself, why would you think that he's not gonna like your heartfelt prayers to him? God loves you. He's the one who called you to himself. He's the one who tells you to, to come to him and pray to him. He covered you with Jesus so that you can come to him and pray with him. And the words that the New Testament uses are, do this with full confidence. You're not coming in the name of you. You're coming in the name of Jesus. You can know that Jesus loves you. Jesus welcomes you to the Father, that God hears you when you pray. You know, none of us prays like we should pray because none of us are perfect yet. What do we do that is perfect? Nothing, right? But we can't let that stop us from coming to God to talk to him. And what a joy it can be when we pray together. The way that we get better at praying is is not by 
not praying. The way that we get better at praying is by praying. It takes discipline, it takes some work. Um, And when we pray together, we can grow by listening to the way that other people pray. Now listen to this, younger believers can learn how to pray by listening to maybe more mature leaders Uh, or sorry, more mature believers pray to God. And at the same time, mature believers can learn how to pray to God by listening to new believers and even children pray to God. We can learn from kids about faith and about prayer. And and as we pray together, we'll hopefully realize that what makes corporate prayer powerful isn't big words, it's not eloquence, it's not this amazing performance. What makes corporate prayer powerful is calling on Jesus' name together as broken people, declaring our neediness to him, and trusting him to work in our lives for his glory and for our blessing. That's what makes it powerful. <clears throat> and we cannot allow, allow our fears of embarrassment or our fears of the opinions of other people to limit our prayer life, to limit the way that we do life as a church. God loves all of us and he delights in our desire as a church family to bring him glory by praying together. That's the truth. He delights it. I think he loves that we're coming together to pray. Just as the apostles and the first Christians devoted themselves to breaking bread together and taking the Lord's Supper together and praying together, we wanna devote ourselves to the same things. And I wanna be, again, crystal clear by <coughs> communicating something again. We, we, we do not show hospitality to Christians, to other Christians. We do not break bread with other Christians. We do not take the Lord's Supper with other Christians. We do not pray with other Christians in order to earn God's love and acceptance or in order to preserve his love and acceptance of us. Christian, you are passionately loved by God, totally accepted by God, completely forgiven by God, because God loved you first. That's the reality. He loved you before you ever loved him. You're saved through faith in Jesus and not by your works. You're not saved by faith. Hear me right? Oh, because we can think, well, I don't have a very strong faith. Well, praise God, your quality of your faith isn't what saves you. Your Savior is what saves you. Jesus saves you. The way that you are saved is through trusting in him, through faith. That's great news. And if you don't have a, if a friendship, if you don't have a friendship with Jesus, if you don't know what we're talking about, <clears throat> then ask him to help you understand that. Come back because we want to tell you about it. Um, Jesus says this, trust in me and be saved. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows your past. He knows what you're struggling with right now. He loves you and he, he tells you and me, you need to turn away from yourself and your sin and you need to turn to me and trust me and be saved by me. And he will save. He's giving us a window of time in human history to be saved by him. And it's because he has saved us who trust in him that we pray to God and ask him, God, help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, both as individuals and as a church. 
Help us to love what you love. Help us share life together in a way that is worthy of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for this message uh, from your word, God, that you've given to us that, uh, oh, so thankful, God, that we don't have to live in fear of your condemnation or of trying to please you because of our works. None of us can pray enough. None of us can pray rightly enough. It's, uh, we, we just, we thank you, Jesus, for being for us what we can't be for ourselves. Thank you for being our savior. Thank you for being our righteousness. Thank you for taking our flaws away on the cross, God. And in this life, we, we obviously still struggle with sin and, and, uh, and our, our flesh and this world. We pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to live into the reality of who you have made us into in the spiritual places, God. Um, thank you for the gift it is to share life together with other Christians. Help us not to take that for granted. Thank you for the gift it is to have food, to eat bread with thankful hearts. Thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper um, and everything that that means to us. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and pray together. We just pray, God, that you would lead whoever you want to be here to be here on Tuesday night. And if they can't be here this Tuesday, maybe they'll be here in a future meeting. And maybe they can pray uh, on their own, God. But we want to lift up our church to you and our community to you and this world to you because we really, really need you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.